I know a lot of scientists are perfectionists, but you know, knowing when to stop, I think is really important and, and good enough is really good enough. Are you working in research, trying to do the best science you can? Are you a team leader, a research assistant, postdoc, PhD student, or any other type of scientist? Are you looking for a place where you can sit, relax, and listen to inspiring people? Well, we have good news for you. You've just found what you're looking for. Hi everybody, my name is Renaud Pourpre. And I am Jonathan Weitzman. Welcome, Welcome to, to The, the Lonely, Lonely Pipette. Helping scientists do better science. My name is Maxim Greenberg. Uh, you can call me Max. I work on uh, DNA methylation at Institut Jacques Minot in Paris. And I am curious to share my tips with a lonely pipette. Maxime, or Max Greenberg, uh, was born in Washington, D.C. in the U.S. He did his Ph.D. in the Jacobson Lab at UCL in, in L.A., working on DNA methylation in plants. And he came to Paris to do a postdoc in the lab of Deborah Borges at the Institut Curie in Paris, to work on DNA methylation and epigenetic modifications during mouse development. In 2017, he was recruited as a chargé de recherche at the CNRS. And in 2019, he set up his own team called Chromatin Dynamics in Mammalian Development at the Institut Jacques Monod. He was awarded numerous prestigious awards, including uh, the ATIP uh, Avenir Award, an EMBO Long-Term Fellowship, an emerging grant from the LabEx Who Am I, and a prestigious starting grant from the European Research Council. Max, thanks for coming to give tips to the Lonely Pipette. Oh, thank you. It's an honor to be invited. Thank you for for being here, Max. It's it's really a pleasure to have you here, uh, especially because you yeah you are the first guest of our episode. Uh, this means a lot for us because you're also like a beta tester. Uh, <laughs> you will see that you, we 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 kind of use at the same time sometimes French or English words, so it's going to be a bit funny about this. Well, that's okay. That's how I speak at my dinner table with my French wife and French American children. So I'm used to it. <laughs> We are, we are going to, to have some starter questions so people can know a bit better who you are uh, in, a, in an original way, let's say. Tell us how you decided to become a scientist. Uh, that's a good question. It's actually a question I've reflected on a lot. I think when I, my applications to grad school back in, all the way back in 2000 and, wow, long time ago now, 2005 or so when I was applying to grad school, uh, I wrote about it. And it's interesting, you know, as far back as I, as I can remember, the first thing I ever wanted to be in terms of a, a job was a scientist. It was, wasn't an astronaut or a fireman. It was a scientist. And I, I think uh, some of that was innate. I mean, I was just really interested by the natural world. I mean, at this point, obviously not DNA or DNA methylation, but you know, birds and bugs and squirrels and, and stuff like that. I loved watching documentaries on National Geographic. Uh, and also, you know, in my family, there were scientists. So it's not like I was coming from, a f and actually most of my friends' uh, families didn't have any scientists in their family, whereas in my family, my grandfather was a scientist and my uncle. I had two uncles who were scientists. So, you know, had kind of gotten into my subconscious as well as a possibility for a job as, you know, this is like a realistic thing you can do with your career, uh, which unfortunately is not the case, I think, for, for a lot of people. You know, they think scientists are just some people out in their, you know, quote unquote, ivory tower coming from magical places to work on stuff they don't understand, <laughs> which is not actually. The, I knew my uncles. They were goofy bozos like, you know, the other <laughs> men I knew, you know, so. like you wanted to be <laughs> like exactly. It's like, oh, that's how I want to be, yeah, you know, cracking wise, drinking beer, you know, just like my dad. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but but yeah, but ultimately I, 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 you know, I had an interest, too. It was it was a passionate like, oh, I, I, I really loved science. I mean, I think I, I wanted to be an ornithologist at one point or then a zoologist or, you know, I kind of went along the 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 route of uh, evolutionary biologist, this and that. And then, you know, ultimately my my, uh, you know, career started in full, you know, my PhD when I got into to uh, uh, epigenetics. Cool. Great. Great. Uh, there are different kind of people. Yeah. Yeah. There are people that uh, I don't don't have any scientists in their family. I, I don't have any scientists in my family. My father is a cook teacher. 
the funny thing is like while you teach cooking when you you cook you have an approach that can be a little bit similar like when you are in the bench because you have to really uh, set up everything before like a protocol you have to follow it and you have to sometimes to improve it and, and change it so well my wife likes to say that at least for molecular biology that good chefs make good molecular biologists <laughs> i always kind of thought that was kind of a, a dig at me because i'm not a particularly good chef <laughs> <laughs> i'm not a good one too like what are you, what are you trying to say angelique but, but, uh, <laughs> anyway <laughs> No, but I think there's some there's something to it. Something about like uh, starting with basic ingredients and making something tangible at the end, uh, following recipes, and you know. Were you the type of child that received a microscope from their parents or uncles or family at at some point? Yeah, or another tools? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. We we did. I mean, my parents were, you know, my my uncles were scientists, and my grandfather, my parents were not scientifically inclined at all. On the other hand, they were incredibly supportive. You know, but overall, they were they were very supportive of whatever me and my sisters wanted to do. And because I want to be a scientist, yeah, of course, you know, I got chemistry sets when I was a kid and magnifying glasses and maybe not a microscope, but, you know. So now we know a bit the origin story, but we want to know a bit more further during your scientific uh, career. If you you did ever consider leaving science where there were moments, you, you can you think of, of a time when you had a lot of troubles and it was quite complicated for you? I would say the only time, the closest I ever got to not wanting to do science was when I started university. So that's already maybe like earlier than you're even thinking about. When I thought for like, I don't know, a minute, oh, maybe I'll be a medical doctor. Because I was like, well, you know, I, I like biology and I take biology classes and I'll just be a doctor. And then it didn't take me very long to realize like, I was interested in the biology. Why don't I become a biologist? Like, I like humans, you know, I'm not like a misanthrope, you know, or a, but like, uh, uh, what, but it wasn't my passion to go and heal people or, you know, cut somebody open and, you know, repair an artery. <laughs> that wasn't something that I had, you know, some kind of passion for. What I liked was understanding, okay, well, how does blood flow through the circulatory system? Learning about that, that was more interesting to me than, not that being a doctor would be a perfectly honorable profession, of course, but no, no, for me. And that, that was just like a little blip. Uh, but later, you know, when I was a postdoc, And all of a sudden you get to that point in your career where you're like, well, what happens if this doesn't work out? You know, which is, I think, a, a co very common anxiety among postdocs. So we're going to come to that because we want to explore that 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 moment. But before, maybe maybe just tell what what are the steps that brought you? So so you're born in, uh, in the States, you study, you do your PhD in California. Yeah. How did you end up in France? What, how did that happen? You know, I think there are two sides of the story like with a lot of scientific paths. One is very personal, uh, my personal life. You fell in love. I fell in love, exactly. So I did the, I did the same thing. <laughs> That's why I'm here. What, with, with cheese? Or... <laughs> yeah, exactly. The moment I tasted a baguette from a real boulangerie, I was like, I've got to live here in France. <laughs> uh, no, so, so my wife, uh, she was doing her postdoc in Steve Jacobson's lab. Uh, so yeah, as you say, yeah, we, we felt as uh, there's an article I read in the satirical paper called the onion in America that said, uh, two scientists discover each other. <laughs> I was like, yeah, so that was kind of our, our story, you know, like our cheeks slightly brushed while we shared a microscope. Um, no, but we, uh, we met back in, uh, in LA and she told me very early on, you know, before we became a serious couple that she wanted to move back to France. I mean, she kind of, uh, which I think was actually a very mature thing to do before like you know things got kind of out of hand and then we had to have a very difficult conversation she kind of laid it out very early you know my family's back in france and i want to go back to france and that kind of set the table it's like well okay well if we take this seriously i'm going to try to do a postdoc in france so so how did you choose your postdoc because you, you you left um you you didn't stay in plant epigenetics right? exactly exactly so what you know what i really loved was not Plant. So, so I think this is actually something that's it's funny about people who study plant molecular biology. What I noticed in the in my in my lab at least, which was really a hardcore molecular biology lab, most of the people that ended up studying in plants also they really loved plants. You know, that was like kind of a common thread. And I include my wife in this as well, and also my my boss. You know, he started off kind of on a farm working in agriculture, and then his his road led to molecular biology, and. Uh, 
Whereas I, I, I never really gravitated towards plants. I mean, you know, I mean, not, not, nothing against plants. I mean, they're, they're, they're like, they're a great model. I, I eat them every day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I love to eat them. Yeah. No, but you know, I'm not much of a gardener. I mean, I see a pretty flower. I'm like, oh yeah, it's nice. I mean, I, I like plants the way I like art. So for you, for you, Arabidopsis was just a model, a model organism. Exactly. And, and, and for what I studied, DNA methylation, it is actually a great model for a number of reasons. Uh, I was actually more interested in, in animals, but I, what I really wanted to do was stay in epigenetics. That's like what, that was what, what really caught me. And when I started my PhD, that wasn't the case. I didn't even know what epigenetics was, you know, and, and I didn't know like what a histone was and, you know, histones are the proteins that DNA is wrapped around. And I didn't know what DNA modifications were, but like I, as I did my PhD, you know, my, my, my passion really grew for that. And I really wanted to continue in epigenetics. Did your PhD go well? Yeah, my PhD went quite Happy well. time. Very, uh, yeah. PhD, I, you know, I don't want to say this because subsequently I've had children and, you know, <laughs> but like, yeah, I would say the period of my PhD were like the second half of my PhD. For me, those are absolute golden years. And I've, complaining about PhD is, you know, it's kind of like a universality. You don't have to. You don't have to. But no, you don't have to. Exactly. But it's, you know... It, it sounds like a right. fashion. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I don't know why. Like, you know, uh, pe- pe- people complain about stuff because it's you know it's easy to, and there's of course there's always stuff to complain about, you know. But I, for me, it was just, I mean, it was just excellent. I loved what I was doing. I loved the flexibility. I loved the freedom. I loved the intellectual freedom. My boss was, he, my boss was one of these guys that was at conferences, getting invited to all the conferences. So he wasn't there a lot, and he was very results oriented. You know, we had our lab meeting I think twice a year that we had to give, and you know that was kind of the time you would get to share your results. And I think that that was very effective management. At least it worked for him. So how did how did you choose the Borges lab? So how did I choose the Borges? So I wanted to stay I wanted to stay in uh, epigenetics. And more specifically, I wanted to stay in DNA methylation, which is really my, my field, as I mentioned. You know, what are the DNA methylation labs in France? And more specifically, uh, what are the DNA methylation labs in Paris? Because my wife's best opportunity when she was coming back to France were in Paris. Also, that's where her... Her parents live or they live in the suburbs. Uh, Deborah, I didn't know her research when I was doing my PhD. Not because I, I shouldn't have, because she did when, you know, she did really some seminal work. But what I did was I read a review she wrote. She wrote a, a, a high profile review in Science Magazine. That's how her name got on my radar. And then I looked at her work she had done in her postdoc. I was like, oh, that's Deborah Borkas, because she did this really incredible work in her postdoc. And, I, and then I got really interested in what her research program was. And she was at this place called Institut Curie. And I looked more in Institut Curie. And I was like, wow, Institut Curie, which is in the heart of Paris. This, this place sounds great. And, uh, and I went there, not for an interview. So I think my wife was actually giving a talk at Ecole Normale Superior. And while I was there, I was like, well, you know, I'm going to talk to this woman, Deborah. Deborah Borkus, just to kind of, you know, see what, see what her story is. And we really hit it off. I mean, we had a great, a very exciting scientific conversation. And so when I was looking at postdocs, uh, she was like number one, you know, so, and I applied to three labs. I won't say the other two now, but I will just say that of the three, one did not respond to my emails. The other person did respond and I had a great interview with this person. And uh, I think it would have been uh, very scientifically exciting. But for me, it really wasn't a choice. Deborah, we personally hit it off. Her research program was exactly what I wanted to do, like with my career. It was, she was in the middle of Paris. It was not only that, but like my wife was going to work at ENS, at Ecole Normale Superior. We could have lunch together, you know, we could commute together. How, how did your postdoc go? So my postdoc, once again, I, you know, I, I, I really had a, a, an excellent project. This is thanks to Deborah. She gave me a, a really, a really great project. That said, it, it did start out a bit a bit slowly, like most postdocs do. And, you know, I definitely had my moments of anxiety, like, oh my God, what if this doesn't, what if this doesn't work out? But actually, when I look back at, at the at the projects we wrote, it actually, everything kind of went exactly as we proposed, which is not necessarily common. You know, not only that, but things turned out better than we could have predicted. So use the, use the word luck. So you've had these two fantastic yeah, experiences, yeah, yeah. PhD and, and postdoc. You, you you were lucky that you you fell into labs with great mentors exactly yeah. um but but is there something else you said the project was even better than we could have thought is that just luck or oh, talent <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to like spend the whole time just acting like mr humble i am american after all i have to you know. <laughs> 
Uh, no, I don't want to say that. Yeah, nothing to do with me. I mean, I was really interested in it. I think in molecular biology, you know, like you do not need to be Albert Einstein. You know, it, it certainly helps to be smart. But I think that like the defining characteristic of a successful molecular biologist is really passion. You know, because if you really care about something, you're going to learn how it works, you know. Uh, and you're going to get into it and you're going to invest yourself into it and throwing yourself into it is going to be something that's going to be fulfilling. It's not going to be a chore. Uh, and I was passionate. I was always passionate. I mean, I loved it. I love, I mean, I loved what I'm doing. I continue to love what I'm doing. I never felt burned out. That's, that's fantastic. So you have this wonderful PhD, this star postdoc, uh, your wife tells you that you're a lousy cook. (laughs) So, so you decide to stay in science and then you decide to set up your own team. So yeah. can you tell us about that? Because we really want to hear, how did you know that you were ready? And, 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 and how did that happen? When I interviewed with Deborah, she, one of the things she asked me, which I, which I think I, uh, any good postdoc interviewer would ask, how do you see your career unfolding? You know, what, what are your career ambitions? And I told her from the get-go, I, I wanted to manage my, you know, my own lab. I wanted to be a, a group leader. Like I had the ambitions to be to be a group leader, and, and I like going to conferences. I like the idea of being invited to go to conferences and giving talks. I like the idea of talking to other, you know, group leaders. You know, I wanted to be in in, in that world. I guess that was you know something that's more personal, but also scientifically, which is more important. Uh, you know, the idea that you could, you could have independent freedom to to launch several different research programs was very exciting to me. The, I think the better question is, how do you know you're ready? to make that, that big leap from, from postdoc. I don't want to, to say postdoc isn't stressful because it is, you know, because you're, you're, you're at this weird career turning point. On the other hand, you know, when you're a postdoc, your, your responsibilities are, are not that high professionally other than your research project. You don't really have like a big group of people you're working for. You don't have to worry about budget so much. You don't have to worry about logistics so much. You know, you can really be focused on the science. It's a great job. I mean, I think being a postdoc is like the best job ever. But if you get too comfortable for too long, all of a sudden it's like, okay, whoa, all this time's gone by. I've just been like hanging out and now I'm, you know, whatever, 45 and what, like, what am I doing with my life? So for me, the flip didn't switch. It wasn't like, okay, well, it's time to become a PI. I think what happened was my career kind of went on a logical pro- progression. And I was very lucky. And I, I mean this honestly now, like, cause I, I, I got one of these, um, French tenured positions, which at some point it, it's a certain amount of luck to get them because you're competing against literally a hundred other people for about five jobs. So that means of those a hundred, probably 20 at least are great. I think my lucky stars to this day, I was able to get, to get one of those jobs. And then it was Deborah who sent me the call from Institute Jacques Monod. She said, you know, Max, you want to stay in Paris because my wife is in Paris. She's also a permanent researcher. We had our two kids. We had our apartment. We had our mortgage. We had my in-laws. You know, we want to stay in Paris. And she said, these jobs don't pop up all the time. And you want to be an independent researcher. So if you want to go for it, you should go for it. And she really supported me. Had she said, you know what, Max, you just got a permanent research job in my lab. And this is like really important for my lab too. And I'd appreciate if you stayed at least for a couple of years. I actually would have been open to it. Because, you know, she put a big investment in me and I liked Deborah. I liked working with her and I liked the research. That's actually fair. So you, you felt the support to, to, to jump into this uh, adventure? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, she was very generous with the idea that I can take what I'm working on and I can continue it. I mean, it was, it was actually pretty, pretty straightforward and went, and went quite smoothly. There was some stuff I was working on that she wanted to keep. And then there was the bulk of the stuff I wanted to 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 keep and, she, and and this is work that she you know she funded with her grants was that hard to choose what you were going to work on what your lab was going to work on yeah absolutely yeah yeah i think that you know there comes with a lot of insecurity as well oh you know especially when i was with steve so my phd advisor when i was with steve he had enough kind of intellectual capital it's kind of bad to say but like you know if you if you have a project with kind of like a, a kind of a famous or well-known pi backing you people kind of take it a bit more seriously Deborah was a little bit different because she was starting out her career. She wasn't that well established, you know, as a PI at least. You know, there was a little bit more insecurity there. But on the other hand, like, yeah, but she she was smart. She had a great CV, and you know, she'd set up her lab at Curie, and you know, it still felt pretty but, good. But now you now you're on your own. Now you're on your own. You're like, man, am I? Is this is this gonna work? So tell us tell us a bit more about that. How how do you, how are you dealing with that with being on your own and? Well, 
I had from my from my postdoc my big postdoc paper. It was kind of a starting point for my research program. Not to say that like I was going to assure it was going to work or not, but I kind of had this basis that like okay, it can work because we had this previous previous study that was a success, and I you know I believe in. It's like well okay well can we make this bigger? Can we can we grow this into? Uh, into a research program. And, you know, when I, when I first started writing the project, you know, of course there's a lot of self-doubt. Like, ah, oh, really? Like, but what if it doesn't work out and this and that? And I would think the writing the project over and over and over again, over a, literally a period of several years, because you're applying to jobs, grants, and you're just writing and writing and writing and writing, the ideas get really crystal. And then at some point, I can't precise a day or a minute, but at some point, I really started to believe in it. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> tell yourself enough times and finally you'll believe it. Sort of f- fake it till you make it. <laughs> well, I don't want to say <laughs> I don't want to say that on the other I, I will say this though and I, this is very real is that I had a lot of external validation of my ideas. Not 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 I mean nothing's been published, you know, the the real validation is when you have results, but a lot of external validation because I got my charge at re- my my permanent position. I got uh, my job at Jacques Bonneau, and then I got the grants. And I was like, well, okay, this is now a number of juries of people who are really good. Can you tell us a little bit about your choice of Jacques Bonneau? Like, how, how do you choose where you're going to do this? And- yeah, well, you know, I, I think, like, in some ways, it was kind of an easy decision. I would say the decision fell on my lap more than anything. So, you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of postdocs. And in this case, like, I don't think I'll be able to give very good advice. But a lot of postdocs, for example, my old colleague, Joanne Burau, who's now at a PI at IMB in Mainz in Germany, He's one of these guys with a great postdoc. He had, you know, a big science paper. And we went on the market. He applied to, I don't know how many places. I mean, I'm just going to throw a guess there. Let's say 25 plus or minus. But, you know, I think that's fairly typical. You know, just like you just cast a big net and you see where you get an interview. And then based on where you get an interview, maybe you get a job, maybe you don't. And then maybe you're left with like two or three choices, unless you're like a real stud. And so that was his that was his uh, path, and I think that's more typical. Mine, I was like, well, I wanted to stay in Paris, and I had my permanent position. I, you know, I, I it wouldn't have been as appealing for me to to go to Montpellier. I mean, I, I actually think Montpellier would be great. It's a bad example, but you know, you know what I mean. Like we we wanted to stay in Paris. When Jacques Mano call occurred, actually actually happened simultaneously with a call from a place called the Institut Cochin here, also here in Paris. Uh, so I interviewed for both at around the same time, and the decision was made even easier because I got the job at Jacques Monod and I didn't get the job at Cochin. But between the two, and I'm not just saying this because this is where I ended up, between the two, Jacques Monod was my preference. I was really uh, excited about going there. So what I see is like you kept your, your, your eyes open on opportunities because you also want what you wanted to do and you try to, 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 to make match these uh, opportunities with what you wish for your uh, science and family life. Exactly. And, you know, it's not, and it's, and it, of course, like it's usually not that smooth, you know, and I, you know, I feel very, I mean, I don't like to use the word blessed because it feels like it's like something external or above that's dealing with it. But no, but I feel very fortunate. Let's say that's a better word. Was there a plan B? If I didn't get the permanent position, this is something that as something that like I have spent a lot of time wondering about what would be my plan B. As you're a lousy cook. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So like boulangerie, forget about it. Uh, I I guess I could, yeah, but you know, it's like we joke about it, but you know, I do know some biologists who either got disillusioned or didn't work out and they literally ended up as waiters. So that's a real, that's a, you know, it's a real path. What would I have done? Well, first of all, we were, you know, we were in France and my wife had a permanent job here. So it would have been tough to uproot us again and leave countries. And even if we did leave countries, where would we go? Would we go back to America? Then she'd be far from her family. It would have been difficult. So it's like, well, okay, we would have stayed in France if we could. Would I have done a second postdoc and gotten in the, into that cycle? That probably would have been the first thing that, that would have happened, which, you know, is not ideal and it's too bad. You know, it's, 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 it's tough. It's a real bottleneck. It's a real, real career bottleneck. You get to the end of the postdoc and all of a sudden, like, your options become really limited And one thing you can kind of do is just kind of move laterally and do another postdoc. But the longer you do a postdoc, the harder it is for your career to advance. So, yeah, no, it's 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 tricky and it's scary. You know, I say postdoc's great because I think like your day to day is great, but your your anxiety levels, your stress levels are quite high because, you know, in most postdocs, they're. They're this turning. They're not only at the turning point of their career. They're a turning point of kind of their personal lives too. They're often in their mid thirties, and maybe it's time they'd like to have a family and settle down. And things are kind of in flux. It's um, yeah, no, it's challenging for sure. 
you told us before that uh, being a postdoc and being a team leader, you, you, you definitely, it's not the same job because postdoc for you, like you can really focus on science and team leader, you have a lot of things to do. You have to manage the team, you have to manage projects. Did you ever consider taking one of one of these management course or have you ever done it, for example? Uh, no, I no. first of all, I, I would like to and I, I should, and it's really silly. So I had a great grant from the European Molecular Biology Organization for my postdoc. And one of the things they offered was a free uh, management class that they teach over in Heidelberg in Germany. Uh, and I was uh, like, okay, well, I got to do this. I'm going to do this for sure. Unfortunately, too much time had lapsed since the end of my postdoc. And then all of a sudden it was... Um, I think if you did not have the fellowship, it was something ridiculous, like 5,000 euros to take the course. And I was like, okay, well, I'll do it once I get my grant um, so I can at least pay for it. <laughs> uh, so it's something I still plan on doing. Uh, there's also one that's offered by the ATIP, which was another of the starting grants I got, which I signed up for. I think also there are some CNRS, I believe, courses or courses that are based on the on the EMBO course that are also held in Paris, which, which could also be an option. But yeah, no, I think it's really important. I mean, a lot I need to... To learn about management. I mean, it's clear, you know, there's some stuff I think I'm more naturally inclined to like, you know, I, I'm generally smooth at interpersonal communication. Yeah, this, uh, this is not easy for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I know a lot of scientists aren't. We all know scientists who, who aren't. But but there's more to it than that. There's also stuff like managing, you know, my budget. You know, that's like something I, you know, when we have we have help. We have administrative help. But like, how much is How much does it cost to do a year of cell culture? This is something when you're a postdoc, you just don't think about. You know, either your boss tells you you can order this reagent or you can't, or you can do this experiment or you can't. But you're not the one with the Excel spreadsheet and the money. You know. So one of the things that the, the one of the big challenges to setting up your your team is recruiting. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about about how you've been thinking about growing your team and, and what you what's your recruiting strategy? What do you look for in Some things, well, some, first of all, you're, you're a bit constrained by how quickly you can grow your team by how much money you have, of course. That's like, that's kind of an external factor that, that you can only partially control. But beyond that, this is just from my personal observations of watching young teams grow too quickly and kind of collapse under their own weight. To me, to start, my ideal picture of my lab uh, is to have, let's say in five years, two PhD students at different stages Uh, two postdocs, and then and then a, a staff scientist, a, a, what we call in France uh, an engineer, or like if you're in the States, a technician. So somebody who's who's uh, uh, like a, really good at the bench and can also help me with some logistical stuff in the lab, like ordering or organization, stuff like that. Because that way I won't be overextended and I can be really focused and provide adequate mentorship while still getting the research program off the ground. Do, do you have a favorite question that you ask an interview that that shows you that the candidate has what you're looking for? I do. Can you tell us what it is? Yeah, let us know. <laughs> this, this is, Spoiler. This is, a, this is a good question. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> if you're listening to this and want to apply for my lab, yeah, well, you'll be ready. Don't give the answer. Just yeah, give yeah. the question. No, 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 I like this question. The question I ask is, uh, Jonathan will like this, what do you think epigenetics is? <laughs> don't don't give the answer now. Don't give the answer now. That is a tricky question. I like I like this question because there is no right answer. Yeah. And uh, I, I think it can be a little bit destabilizing if you haven't thought about it so much. Of course, it's a bit different if you ask somebody who's 21 and just did their already coming for an M1. I don't think that's like, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have such high expectations. But at least for a postdoc or even a, a, an M2 coming in who, who might thought about it a little bit, you know, what, what, is, what is their idea? Is it really concretely formed? Are they open-minded? Do they have a really strong opinion or do they, are they unsure? Or are they going to try, and the worst is when people try and fake it. So, but I, I will say this about interviewing. When I was recruiting postdocs, I asked people to send me recommendation letters because I thought that's just what you do. But in the email, I also wrote, or if you prefer to just talk by phone, you know, here's my number. So the couple of the people prefer to talk by phone or by Skype or whatever. And those were so much more informative than a rec letter. Yeah. So, so my, my personal experience is that I, I don't ask for a recommendation letter. I send a short number of questions to the, the person, the referee. And I have had people say, That's those questions. Actually, I'm going to send you the recommendation letter that I always send, and then I'm going to answer those questions. And I saw that the questions, if they're well placed, uh, you you get a much more truthful answer. So so we have we have had candidates that, that the recommendation letters looked amazing, 
But when you saw the answer to the specific questions, then you went back and read between the lines and you realized it That's wasn't what we were you know, you, you, like, uh, This is another thing. This is, uh, also, I think this is advice for PhD students out there who are applying to postdocs or postdocs who are applying to jobs. You think the most famous person at your institute, the director of your institute, is the best person to write your recommendation letter because people would have known this man or woman. That is not the case. I don't care what the director of your institute thinks about you because he probably barely knows you. And just because it's a famous name that's meaningless, I would actually prefer to hear about the postdoc who's worked with you than, than the, some famous, you know, godlike figure who, like, you've had, like, four conversations with over four years. You know, I, 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 got, uh, I got, you know, I got the range of, of letters, too. And, and it's true, when you have a phone conversation, then you look back at the letters, and you're like, oh, okay, well, is this person just being enthusiastic because they don't want to say mean things? Because if you have a, like, like we're having right now, you have a phone conversation with somebody, and you hear that hesitation in their voice, that, like, really shines through. And you don't get that with a letter. Okay, that's great advice. Maybe Maybe we'll take a short break, and after the break, come back to a little bit more questions about about the real max okay <laughs> thanks let's break hey folks don't run away you're listening to the lonely pipette with rono pourpre and jonathan weisman where our goal is to help scientists do better science if you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more you can follow us on twitter at lonely pipette and please share the podcast with your friends If you don't want to miss any of our future episodes, you can subscribe to our mailing list and join our community. Click on the subscription link on our Twitter account. It's as simple as that. Take a few moments to get more tips from the Lonely Pipette. You're listening to the Lonely Pipette with Max Greenberg. Um, giving us tips about setting up a team, choosing what you work on, and um, navigating a science career. After the break, we'd like to hear a bit more, a little bit more about who's Max and, and how Max lives. So, so can you tell us? Do you, do you have like a, a morning routine? What what does a day look like before confinement or post confinement? What 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 happens? I yeah, I actually have a very routine oriented life. I think it's kind of part of my personality. Uh, that's actually why, like when the, the, especially the first week or two of, of, uh, the confinement, I got so like disoriented because my routine was broken. But yeah, the way that my day works, I wake up at 6.45 and I just want to have, I don't know, a half an hour to myself to have a cup of coffee. I read the American news, like, you know, just to see what's happening in the States. And then after my shower and everything, uh, then I wake up the kids and then the chaos starts. <laughs> the chaos. <laughs> yeah, there's always something with the, with the kids. So in, in our family, I'm kind of the, the morning parent. I think I'm more of a morning person and kind of like, okay, let's go, 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 go. And I get, I'm the one who gets the kids woken up and then make sure my, my son's pants are on the right way and that, this kind of stuff. And then, so my kids are six and four for those listening. Between my kids waking up and dropping off at school is always kind of a blur. Just like, I, I, always they get dropped off at school. I'm like, what just happened? You know, because <laughs> I mean, there's always, there's always something, you know, some mess, some juice build or, or whatever. And so then I try and get to lab, get there around 9.30. Since I've been a PI, you know, the my days are a little bit more varied in in what I do, you know. Can, can you think of something that, that listeners would be surprised to discover about Max? But I, uh, by, by nature, I am a high anxiety person. Uh, and I think maybe when, when I'm in social situations and I'm talking, you know, and I get into a conversation, like it, it doesn't shine out so much, but I think a lot of times when I'm alone, like either in my apartment or in my office, especially when I started my lab, you know, that was one of the most anxious times in my life when I was alone in this big lab. I, you know, I have these real, you know, squeezing inside, you know, that, and, and I will tell you as somebody who's dealt with anxiety on and off, it feels bad. It feels really bad. So, so how, how did you do to feel better? So whether like when you feel overwhelmed and focused, feel stressed like that, is, is there is something you usually, yes. like a solution you have find for yourself that helps you to... You know, I'm not a mental health ex expert and I don't want to speak to other people's, you know, what, what, what would give them kind of some therapy or relief. But at least for me, uh, talking it out, finding people in your support group, you know, either a partner or a family member you can talk to or a professional. And also, but yeah, but beyond that, for me, exercise is really good. Uh, running, 
is my choice of exercise. I think it's a really good way to to breathe, to get your mind off other stuff and, and get like like physiologically get endorphins, you know, in your body, making you feel good. Uh, also breathing exercises. I'm not I'm not I have to say I'm not very diligent with breathing exercises, but, you know, I, I have tried them. And also for me, like I, because I've, I've dealt with some peaks and valleys of, of anxiety before, I, I do know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, like I do know that this is something that, you know, I can get past. So your wife is a scientist, right? So you have these two, two stressful careers. How do you manage that as a, as a couple? How do you how do you get the work life balance right? Well, when we figure it out, I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> I would say it's an ever present challenge, especially since we've had kids. Before we had kids, you know, of course, like, okay, well, if my wife wanted to work from 2 p.m. until 3 a.m., like, okay, whatever, it's her life. She, she can do what she wants. Once we have kids, of course, your your life becomes a lot more constrained by their schedules, their school, their... But we did a little kind of mental scorekeeping, you know, like, oh, I did two hours yesterday, so that means you do two hours today, this type of stuff, you know. Let's get everything balanced. And I don't think that was very healthy, you know, because then in the end you start holding grudges because you feel like you're overdoing it. And uh, the person's not doing enough, or or vice versa. Is it so? So my wife is not a scientist. Is it sort of friendly competition? Is that is that part of the relation? No, 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 not 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 not. Yeah, and I would also say this about about my wife. Well, you know, I think I we I had a, tons of conversations with people who'd be like, "Oh, it must be so weird to be in competition." I have to say it, it wasn't. But had I not gotten a, a grant, and my wife had gotten a grant, I would have been so thrilled for her. Maybe it helps to, to go to work feeling that there is someone in the house that is doing the same difficult application, for example. Yeah. Having a partner who's also a scientist in that it's tough to describe the daily frustrations to somebody who's not a scientist. I mean, of course, people can empathize. But on the other hand, when you say like, oh, I ran my agarose gel backwards and your wife's a lawyer, you're like... <laughs> go go sue the agarose people. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Well, or as you tell your your wife, like, oh, yeah, you know, I made an SDS gel, but I forgot to add the SDS and I ruined and I lost all my samples. You know, you tell your your wife, the molecular biologist, she's like, oh, no. And you see that the empathy that's real. You're like, OK, yeah, you know, that, that's that's special, I think. So, so how do you feel about competition? Have you been scooped? Are you scared about about the competition? You're, you're just starting off. Certainly, you know, I, I mean, I'm. I'm I would say I'm competitive and territorial to a degree. I, I, I mean, ostensibly, I am a strong proponent of sharing data and for uh, sharing uh, research programs and being as open as possible. But I have been in a couple situations where I have been scooped, and it's like pretty devastating uh, when it happens. That said, I kind of I made lemons into lemonade in, in both of the situations where we we got papers you know out, we got papers published, so it wasn't like it was just in the trash. So, so just just on that that slip you had, do you think living in France makes you less competitive as a scientist? You know, when I was with Deborah, I didn't feel that way. Now that I'm starting my lab, you know, you, you can see it. Especially, I have a lot of colleagues who are you know kind of hanging on for dear life from their last grant. The French system is challenging in terms of uh, the amount of money you get per grant and the competition per grant. I like I, I'm not an expert about grants in different systems, but from what I see in Germany, they've got small money grants, but they're a lot less competitive. Or in America, you've got big money grants, but there's uh well they're they're competitive, but they're big money. So you know if you get one of those, you can you can have a lot of flexibility with your with your research program. Whereas in in France, as soon as you get a grant, you have to think about the next grant. Uh, and you know I think that's that can be certainly a constraining force. You can imagine, okay, two grant cycles in a row where things didn't work out, like, whoa. I mean, that's that's like a very real possibility. So now that you're a leader, yeah. are you thinking differently about grants? Are you taking it like more in a stressful way? Are you are you afraid to not get it? You know, I, I mean, I, I think I'm not there yet, uh, you know, because I'm just starting. And right now, my, my I feel like my situation for the next six or seven years is pretty stable. I'm sure in six or seven years, if I don't have any papers... Yeah, I'll be quite stressed. So yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of incentive for me to have you know early early returns. Do you, do you get stressed when you have to give a, a speech, when a, a talk at a meeting? Do you, does that still stress you? And and how do you deal? How do you deal with that? Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, less than I did at the beginning. 
people listening uh, might know of, of Keystone Conferences. You know, it's a big uh, uh, conference series in America. And when I was a PhD student, I got selected from an abstract to give uh, give a talk. And I think that was the most nervous I've ever been for anything in my whole life. I was just full body frozen fear. <laughs> I was so scared. And this is, sounds terrible to say. This sounds terrible to say. But I'm going to say it because we're all about honesty. The guy who spoke for me, he had a really tough time getting through his talk. And I was like, okay, well, I can't be worse than that guy. <laughs> it's funny because I, I once gave a, a TED talk and the the guy, it's very stressful to give a TED talk, the, the context and the, it's a big audience. And the guy before me, who, I, who I'd met the night before and he seemed great and he had this great talk, um, he froze in the middle of his talk. He just lost his words. But for like an, a minute, I mean, people started clapping. It was, and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> how can I get, I, instead of feeling like, oh, I'm not going to do that. I was like, oh my God, what happens if it, what, what if it happens to me? So. I mean, I think maybe I didn't have enough time to really think about it, but I, I, at least I was thinking like, well, I'm um, fortunate to be a native English speaker. I was like, oh, at least I'll say words that people will understand. It never happened to you before, like having a blank kind of like being so stressed that you, you, you lose what you wanted to say at a moment. I would say as soon as I start talking, I kind of lose the fear. Get into the flow. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And even so, even so, even when I was applying for um, the permanent research position here in France, trust me, I was unbelievably nervous for that, you know, because that felt the stakes. It was different than the Keystone conference. Keystone was like, oh, you're at a conference with your peers. This was like well, the stakes of my career were on the line. Uh, you know, I needed to do a good job. And, you know, I, I, I remembered I arrived an hour early and then the jury was an hour late. So it was two hours of just waiting there. And each minute felt like an hour. It was, yeah, high stress. But as soon as it started talking, then you get comfortable. And then especially like, you know, I think this comes with a little bit of maturity also, or at least, you know, experience. When you're talking about science, it should be fun. You know, you're like, this is your research. It's cool. This is the stuff I've been working on. And now you have a rare time, which is rare. It's only a couple times per year where you have got a, a room full of eyes looking at your work and you get a, you know, talk to them and explain why you think it's interesting or relevant. You get to defend your, your research. You get to talk about why, you know, why you did these experiments or what you want to do in the future. So I think if you kind of take a positive spin on it, and I tell this actually to, to thesis students who are so nervous about their defense, you know, if you're really ready to defend your thesis, it's actually pretty fun, especially in France. I think it's quite cool. You can get these people on your jury from all over Europe, you know, who are really brilliant scientists focused on your PhD research. It's pretty cool. You have to enjoy it. Enjoy <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah. You know, think of the questions as like, a, and most scientists, you know, they're not, they're not dragons. They're people like you. They're just older. You know, they like science and they're, you have a chance to, to talk science with these people. You wouldn't, you know, necessarily have an easy time to, to talk with for three hours about your research. So take advantage of it. Are you afraid to lead? Were you af afraid when you just started it? Is there something that you're really afraid of in your job of team leader right now? Yeah, you know, I, I think the responsibility especially for PhD students and postdocs who are on these short contracts to be in your lab, you all of a sudden have a, a human responsibility to ensure that, you know, their careers can progress. You have a lot of power over their career. You can give them a real crap project or a project that won't turn you, no matter what your intentions are, you know, people can have, have, have bad luck, you know, and like the, there's a lot of responsibility from the, from the, from the group leader to make sure that things kind of get on the right path. And, and I'm something I really, want to prioritize, which every group leader should prioritize, is making sure their PhD students come out with a publishable study. You know, easier said than done. Sometimes stuff just doesn't work out. So thinking of, of tips for, for, for someone at the beginning of their career, um, what, what, can you think of like something very actionable, something that someone could start today that would help them become a better scientist? Just uh, nuts and bolts stuff. Read, read. <laughs> I, I, I cannot, I cannot emphasize this enough. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it sounds incredibly easy and obvious. I mean, it is so important and you have this great thing on your desk with access to every paper written and you can access it at any time. Don't be afraid. Just, to, just do it. <laughs> just do it. Read, read when stuff comes out and, and there's two types of reading. There's reading, as a French would say, au di diagonal, you know, just kind of like read the abstract and maybe the, the figures and get the idea and okay. I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily, 
because you can't read every paper in depth. This gives you a, a good idea of what people are working on at least. You can, and if you see an experiment, it might catch your eye and then you can investigate it further. So I do a lot of that actually. You know, I read a lot of papers, au diagonal, we say in English skimming. On the other hand, you can't do that for every paper, and some papers you really have to read. And when you really read a paper, that's you know that takes a couple hours. So I'm I'm going to put you on the spot. Is is there a paper that you give to all your students that's really a paper that you think this is what everyone in my lab should read because this really shows the questions in the field, the approaches, um, apart from your own papers. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> Yeah, I've got a Greenberg et al. 2017. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you my favorite paper, but it's not a paper. Okay, yeah, uh, tell us your favorite paper. Uh, there's a Japanese researcher. This is in plant molecular biology. Uh, um, there's a guy named Tatsuji Kakatani. The reason I like his papers is because, you know, I think a, a lot of the great molecular biologists we see now, they are doing like all these really high-powered expensive experiments that involve a lot of sequencing, single cell sequencing, you know, these crazy methods that are really cool, but you know, there's not, they're not uh, necessarily financially viable or that easy to, to implement. Uh, whereas Tetsuji, at least, you know, he, he doesn't publish very often, but when he does publish papers, they're incredibly clever in their design. And so he had a paper, ah, you know, it was a science paper, I want to say from 2004, where he showed for the first time imprinting in plants. Uh, and it was so cool. And I was one of these papers where I was just like, man, that is like a guy who really thought about science and he does an experiment and the experiment worked and the experiments are so clear. And that that's, that's you know, I think also, it's kind of like, you know, your, your, your first girlfriend or the first band you love. This is like the first paper I love, so it still stayed my first. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's good. We have a, with Jonathan, we have a very important question for you that is maybe a bit difficult is if you know for in, in your history as, as a scientist, if you, you had a failure or an apparent failure that was tough to, to go through and that taught you something and prepare you for the later success that you have. Okay, I, I, that's a great question. And I've had a lot of failures. And I, I you know, we, we've talked about my career path and it seems very linear and easy. Uh, that said, I, you know, I didn't have a, a big discovery, let's say, that that was, you know, one day to the next, like, oh, okay, this is going to be a nature paper. And I will remember the first real failure I ever had was I was doing a genetic screen uh, and I was screening, uh, you know, a population of plants for a phenotype. And this was after all the, the genetic crosses and collecting the tissue and everything. And I remember when the film came out of the developer and I saw I had no mutants because I screwed up the cross. I thought my life was going to end. I was like, I'm going to crawl into a, into the fetal position on the floor of the dark room. And I'm going to stay here for a few days. You know, <laughs> I just, I felt so bad. But now, you know, I look back on that and I'm like, oh, that was part of my, I mean, you know, it's part of what made me a scientist. You you have to have the... the so when the, your postdocs come with a gel like that, you just say, oh, that's part of life. <laughs> I, I, I'm, you know, I've, and I've had a lot of stuff like that. I've, you know, I've had a lot of, of, of uh, missteps or mistakes and stuff that just felt so bad in the moment. And then in the end, it just becomes kind of the tapestry of your career. You know, it's like, okay. And then you have the good stuff too. I know the bad stuff feels bad, but the good stuff should also feel great or, or more great or as great as the bad stuff feels bad, you know, and it should all, and there's more bad stuff than good stuff. We all know that like experiments that work as planned or stuff you get, I mean, the worst is results that you can't even interpret because the results are so ugly, you know, stuff like this. Uh, but you know, that's, it kind of makes you into the, into the scientist, uh, that you are those bad results too. They, they, I think actually if you're, path is too beautiful with a science paper or nature paper, then you're not going to be prepared for a paper that might not, or a study that might not turn into a science or nature paper. I know some researchers like that too, where, you know, they, they just, they, they had their science paper for their PhD and their nature paper for their postdoc. And they thought, okay, well, my, all these are easy. I'll just get a nature paper forever. Uh, you know, something that I, my old, my PhD boss, especially, I think that was, was, was great is he saw any study that would just He was very, very pragmatic. He saw every study that wasn't going to become a science or nature paper. And he said, well, let's just, let's just make it into a paper. And, you know, and, and he was really kind of uh, one, not one of these guys who was, was, was only going to publish in the vanity journals. He just like, if you did the work and you and put the time and effort into it, let's just get, get it out. And I think that was a very valuable lesson. At some point, you just, I think the better question is knowing when to stop. Do you, do you have a, a favorite phrase or quote that, that's on, that you would put on, on your, the, la the door of your lab or on your whiteboard? Do you have I, I, I actually do. 
Yeah. Do you want to tell us what yeah. it is? No, I keep it for myself. No, no, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> the best advice I think uh, I can give is um, perfection is the enemy of good enough. And I think that's like, I, I think that's the, the really the, 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 the best advice I can give because, you know, good enough is, is, you know, it's a heuristic. It's good enough. And, and, and you just keep doing, get better and better and better and better. But good enough is good enough. And I think, you know, knowing a lot of, I know a lot of scientists are perfectionists, but, you know, knowing when to stop, I think is really important. And, and good enough is really good enough. I think that's a great place to wrap up because we're doing this podcast under you know good enough conditions but not perfect <laughs> yeah. so but that's great because uh now it was really fun to talk to you max so um where can people find out if they want to find out more about max and and your work so obviously they can read they can go and look at greenberg et al 2017 but um what where where else um where else can people find out about you so uh, i've got my lab webpage, which is easy to remember it's maximgreenberglab.com uh, so that's my research program, and I'll try to keep it uh, uh, pretty uh, reasonably updated. You're also very active on Twitter. Yeah, and I was going to say, yeah, yeah, so if you follow me, uh, my Twitter handle, you can either look for me, Max Greenberg, but my Twitter handle is uh, at Max, M-A-X-V, like Victor, C, like Charlie, G, like golf. Um, and yeah, I'm quite active. And, and I, I, I think Twitter is actually, uh, you know, I'm like actually Jonathan, I, uh, and I are on the same page about this. I think it's a, it's, it's great for, uh, for science. It's great for communication. It's great for sharing papers. What advice uh, would you give to yourself, uh, if you, you, you met yourself, uh, at the beginning of your career? I think the advice I would give is to myself or, or anybody is, you know, don't get overwhelmed by the stress and the anxiety risk taking is part of life and embrace it and look at the positive sides of it. And, and it's, you know, it's easy to say, but I think it's, it's really important. And even if things don't work out perfectly, like, well, I guess it's kind of hard to say this right now because we're in the middle of a pandemic, but you know, normal, normally I would say, you know, the world will still be there, you know, these still, uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks very much for, for all your tips for the lonely pipette. Thank you. It was a pleasure for us really. Thanks for coming, Max. It was, that was a pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation. So that's it for this episode. Thank you for joining us at The Lonely Pipet. We hope that you learned something new, that something resonated with your own experiences, or that you just enjoyed the science. Let us know your thoughts on Twitter at Lonely Pipet. And please, share it with your friends in the lab. If you want to join our community, you can subscribe to the Lonely Pipet mailing list or mail us by following the link available on our Twitter profile. You will receive the next episodes directly in your mailbox. How cool is that? Stay tuned for the next show and remember, you might feel like a lonely pipette, but it doesn't mean you're alone. Tips from the Lonely Pipette can help you to do better science. A bientôt! A bientôt! Hey guys, one last thing to finish up. If you like the soundtrack of the show, you might want to know who is the artist behind it. The song is called Lovely Swindler by Amaria, a talented French artist who composes Electro Swing. We are really grateful for allowing us to use it. And if you like it too, the best thing to do is to share it. Thanks again and see you soon.